Make your way to the book of Revelation. We return to God's final book in His perfect Word and come to the end. Just the last few verses of chapter 11 and this evening, verses 15 through 19. So let me read the sounds of this seventh trumpet for us. And then pray that God would bless our hearing and keeping of this word, and and then we'll begin. So listen as the seventh trumpet sounds. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together once again. Father, we do ask that You give us insight, that by Your Spirit that You would illumine our minds and our hearts' understanding of this truth that we might not only hear your word and keep it as well, that we might find your blessed benediction upon it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was one of those weeks that tend to come and tend to go, and I suppose the older you get, the more they tend to come and go, where a death was all too real as the week continued to pass by. It was on Tuesday of this week that my wife's great aunt died at the ancient age of 105 years old. And Lord willing, on my birthday in just a short amount of time, I will do her funeral. And then the next morning on Wednesday morning, I was officiating the funeral of a dear old saint in the church that died not long ago. And then it's, of course, likely in the life of our church that we may only be hours, if not days, away from another dear brother in our church passing away and another funeral coming and another funeral going, another saint making his heavenly homecoming. And in the midst of such prevalence of death, a constancy of loss, uh, you want some degree of hope, don't you, that things will end much sooner than later, that you as a pastor won't have to do many more funerals, that the Lord Jesus would return. And so it's in God's kindness and grace towards us uh, this evening that He does in this seventh trumpet, He lifts our gaze uh, to the coming of Jesus Christ when death would be no more, when death is finally defeated, when His kingdom reigns victoriously. And so let's make sure we get our bearings on this passage as we come to the end of the chapter. If you were with us last week, we looked at the first 14 verses of chapter 11. It was in those 14 verses that we confronted one of the most mysterious, yet one of the most majestic texts that you're going to find in all of Revelation. And it was a text that simply told us through these somewhat strange and striking images 
that the church of Jesus Christ, in between his two comings, is going to preach the gospel. His church is going to be persecuted, and that persecution is going to break out against the church. And it's often going to be deadly. It's going to be fatal in its force. But the great good news is that God is ultimately going to protect His church against all of the onslaught of the enemy, that He is building His church on earth and the gates of hell, yes, indeed, won't prevail against it. And so we come this evening to once again the end of human history in Revelation in this seventh trumpet. Because students, I hope you remember how these seven trumpets represent God's uh, second tour that He's given to John of human history. And it's after something of a long interlude that we finally get to the seventh trumpet this evening. And it's calling us, as it would have been calling John and his initial readers and hearers, to look to that day when God is going to make all things new and He's going to make all things right. And as the book actually continues to give us these ongoing glimpses of heaven, it's only going to be later on in the book that we get a fuller picture. But He's giving us part of a perfect picture of the day to come in our text this evening. And if you ever made your way to the end of John Calvin's famous work, The Institutes of Christian Religion, what you'd find is not only a book that's full of much more devotional material than you probably might realize based on that title, but you would find Calvin saying something about the nature of Christ's second coming and what it ought to mean for Christians when he says, let us remember this truth. No one has made much progress in Christ's school who does not look forward joyfully both to his death and the day of Christ's final resurrection of his people. And I wonder how often you have the occasion to look forward joyfully to your death, look forward eagerly to the day of final resurrection. And so what the Spirit is doing through the Word tonight, He's putting us in Christ's school, isn't He? That we might learn that lesson that maybe we haven't learned well enough. A lesson that creates longing within us, yearning within us for the day when the Lord Jesus will return. It is a, it's a short text, it's a short scene in Revelation. I've got three simple words that I wrote down to mark off our study. The first word is praise, the second is power, and the third is presence. So first, God's praise announced. Look at the first part of verse 15 once again. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. Now, kids, you need to remember what these final trumpets represent in Revelation, because it's easy to miss the actual import and importance then of these trumpets that's going to come. Just glance one verse up to where we left off last week. Where we left off last week, it says, The second woe has passed, that's being the sixth trumpet. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Because all the way back in Revelation 8, verse 13, we were told that there were these three woes that were going to come. This eagle flew across the horizon, as it were, and announced three woes upon the earth. And here is the third and final woe. This seventh trumpet's going to be a word of woe. It's going to be this announcement of judgment. So what is the word of warning? We'll look at verse 15 as the text continues. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now, students, if you look carefully at verse 15, you might wonder, how is that a word of woe and warning? That sounds like good news, doesn't it? The kingdom of Christ is going to reign forever and ever. How is that a word of warning on the unbelieving world? Well, it's because only the kingdom 
of Christ will reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world, they rise, they fall. The rulers of this world, they rise and fall. And there will be but only one kingdom. There will be but only one ruler who stands at the end of all things. And that is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so, what can be the response to such news, at least from heaven's perspective, other than praise? Notice verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. It's been a while since we've noticed those 24 elders. Just remember, it's a symbolic picture of God's people. The collective people of God throughout the Old and New Covenant, thinking of something like the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles added together to represent 24 elders, symbolic of all God's people. And what does the worshiping church do at this announcement of God's everlasting kingdom other than praise Him, other than worship Him? And a number of you have been with us. Now we're almost halfway through the book, aren't we? And I trust that you're seeing how often Heaven seems to just burst forth in spontaneous praise at what God has done, at who God is. And can you think back on a time in your life recently, perhaps even in the last week, when your heart has burst forth in spontaneous praise for who God is, for what God has done? I know you've had reasons to do it this week, but have you done it? As your soul in that heavenly-minded state, we're so attuned to who God is and what He's done that it's punctuated your days with spontaneous praise to Him. Now, the Bible tells us that a person is revealed by his or her praise. Proverbs 27 verse 12 tells us that a person is tested by their praise. Because you'll praise someone, you'll praise something, and what does the praise of that someone or something reveal about you? Well, here, of course, it's God's praise that is occupying, that is saturating the worship there in heaven. And God's praise announced now leads to God's power declared in verse 17 and 18. I remember a conversation I had with a number of modern hymn writers several years ago, and we were talking about the need for their hymns, because I'm not a lyricist by any stretch of the imagination, but I can chime in on their lyrics, I guess. And so we were talking about just the need for biblical allusions and language and phrases to fill their uh, modern hymns. And one of the brothers said, in a way that's always stuck with me, he says, hey, just show me your church's songs and I'll show you their theology. And it's quite true, isn't it? Sometimes all you need to know is what the church sings to know everything you need to know about that church. Heaven's going to sing again. I notice how the depths of doctrine sound forth in heaven's song. Verse 17 continues, We give thanks to you, the 24 elders, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Now, if you're keenly aware of Revelation, you know something is missing. Or at least it seems like something is missing from the 24 elders' song. Because in a way that chapter 1 and chapter 4 announced, there's something different here. For those chapters exalted and worshipped and praised God who is, who was, and who is to come. But now in the seventh trumpet he has come. There's no reason to praise him because he has come here at the end of all things. And it's a coming that's one of power. For notice verse 17 ends, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. 
Kids, you don't want to think, and you ought not think, that it's not until the last day that God is finally reigning on earth. Because he is certainly ruling and reigning right now. Uh, The idea, of course, here is at the end of the age, at that last day of judgment, it's when Christ is going to be the only ruler left standing. That once again, there's only going to be one kingdom that is left unshaken and undeterred and unstopped in the world. They praise him, don't they, for his great power. Some of you, I imagine, have had close family members, perhaps even parents, maybe grandparents that have approached the end of their life and uh, they have this sense that the end is coming and maybe they begin to talk about needing to set their affairs in order to settle the requisite accounts. And such a settling is now going to take place in verse 18. The, The Bible says there at the last day of Jesus Christ that The day of God's wrath is going to be the day of judgment. It's going to be a time in which he settles accounts eternally. For look at what verse 18 continues to say. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. Okay, So this is Revelation's language for the day of judgment. And what the text is now going to go on and say in just the rest of verse 18 is there are only two possible outcomes from this day of judgment. Outcome number one. That God will reward his servants. You see verse 18, the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants and the prophets and saints and those who fear your name both great and small. So the reward of eternal life, the reward of enjoyment of God's blessedness forever, I hope you see, doesn't belong to how important, how great, or how significant you are in the world. Because it says both great and small. What then matters, children? As if you fear the Lord. The reward that belongs to his servants is the reward that belongs to those who fear God's great name. There are a few things to be known for that are better than he or she fears the Lord. I wonder if you're known for your fear of God. Are you known for your service of God? Outcome number one is that he will reward his servants. Outcome number two is he'll destroy his enemies. You see at the text ends... This is the day of wrath, the time for the dead to be judged and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's an interesting phrase. He's using the same word to describe both the judgment of the godless and the oppression of the godless. And the reason that's important is because it's underscoring this biblical principle is that the punishment meets the crime. That God's judgment of his enemies is always one that they deserve. There are always and only two possible outcomes at the end of all things. You can refine the reward that belongs to his servants, or you can find the destruction that belongs to his enemies. The seventh trumpet sounds. God's praise announced. God's power declared. Thirdly and finally, verse 19, God's presence revealed. See how the verse begins, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Uh, We know from the end of the book that in heaven, in new heavens and new earth, there is no temple. There's no need for a temple. 
So this is a language that is symbolic in nature. It's actually communicating to us there at the last day, at that day of judgment. When all things are going to be made new, there's no need for a temple, really, because it's God's fullness of presence that now belongs with His people. And so it's taking these images from the Old Testament temple life to communicate that His presence is now with His people. So you can think about that with this language of the Ark of the Covenant was seen. Because kids, think about this question with me. Bible trivia, if you will, for a Sunday evening exercise. In the Old Testament temple, where was the Ark of, Coven- the, Ark of the Covenant held? It was in the Holy of Holies. Okay, now, who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies? The high priest. And how many times a year was the high priest allowed to go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was? Once. But now... What this text is saying is that very Ark of the Covenant, symbolically pictured here, is now open to everyone, all of God's people. And you ought not to be able to see a text like this without remembering how it is that such presence is given to God's people. Because, of course, He sent His Son, who's none other than Emmanuel, God with us. That curtain that lay across the Holy of Holies that prevented anyone from coming inside because their sin kept them out. Jesus Christ, He hung on the cross. He was crucified on that cursed tree. And what happened to that curtain? It tore apart. Symbolizing for us that the way into God's presence is now open and available to all who come through Jesus Christ. And here now pictured at the end of all things, that very presence is now fully and finally in its fullness arrived. Before God's people, such is the great day of glory that belongs to His saints. But you need to recognize, as Revelation does over and over, is that God's presence is no small thing to experience. It's no casual thing to anyone, sinner and saint alike. For notice the rumblings that belong. I think what we're meant to see at the end of verse 19 is the experience of God's presence is quite different to unbelievers. Theirs is a plague-like experience from the presence. For notice what we're told. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So these are the notes, the sounds of the seventh trumpet. Praise, power, and presence. Earlier this week, I was reaching up in my closet to find something that I still haven't yet found. And I stumbled across, you know, reaching up there where my eye couldn't see this old photo album of soccer journeys of old, back when I used to take pictures of everywhere that we went. And one of the best pictures that's in there is our roommate, who was the best man in my wedding, and we were uh, sitting on a windowsill in a hotel room. And you might think that doesn't sound altogether exciting, does it? Well, the hotel was in Switzerland. But that may not sound altogether exciting either, but then you notice that the hotel was underneath the Swiss Alps. And that might sound intriguing, but it was a very sunny day, and it was picturesque in its blue grandeur and glory and splendor. The backdrop behind us, behind our heads on that window, was none other than the Swiss Alps, and all of its alpine wonder. And I imagine that many of you have pictures like that, perhaps of a wedding day, a child being born, that does something to you, stirs emotions within you, recollections and longings, hopes and desires within you. And if you see a picture like that, you might have the same response that I do when I see pictures like that. The picture still doesn't do it justice. That it was much more wonderful than even that picture makes it look. 
And Revelation is giving us those kind of pictures over and over of heaven, these spirit-inspired portraits of the glory to come. But we still have to say, God's inspired picture still can't do it justice. So much greater is the reality that one day we'll get to experience. But we do have to say, don't we? It does communicate something to us. And kids, pay attention as we begin to close. It communicates at least these two most basic things, which are the most important things you can hear from Revelation. Number one, Christ's coming brings unbelievers into terrifying eternal misery. There's no way around that constant theme in Revelation. If it's true that the fullness of heaven's glory is yet to be fully revealed in Revelation, it's the same thing as that the terror of hell's agony is yet to be fully revealed. But you get words signaling it, don't you? You get words like wrath, judgment, destruction, earthquake, heavy hail. A Christ's coming for unbelievers is a coming unto eternal misery. But secondly, his coming for believers that brings them into eternal glory. There is nothing sweeter than God's presence for God's people. When all the wrongs will be made right, when all the sad things will become untrue, when in that day you will get to see the king in his beauty more clearly than you can see me right now and I can see you right now. Because everything is now as it always should have been. So when the seventh trumpet sounds forth its praise, its power, its presence, will it will be a sound that brings you into terrifying eternal misery, or will it be a treasured summons to eternal glory? Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would set our minds on things above, not on the things of earth, that in the midst of our hardship we would find hope in heaven, that in the midst of difficulty and death we will look to the eternal deliverance that is offered through Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we do pray that you would hasten the coming of your kingdom, that you would quicken the return of your Son that we might see him as he is in all of his majesty, splendor, and beauty. Do sustain us in perseverance as we wait and comfort our hearts as we long for his arrival. And we pray these things in his beautiful name. Amen. Let's stand together as we do in many ways want to join the worship in heaven as we sing, O Worship the King, singing verses 1, 2, 4, and 5.